In its earliest days, TV was radio with pictures. TV drama would still operate on the principle that we were tuning in to see people talking, often in limited locations and rarely outside. This was aided immeasurably in the early days of TV production because everything was shot as live, meaning it was filmed like we were watching a stage play. The camera would roll and the actors would perform straight through, rarely having even a break. In early 60s shows like Doctor Who, camera break times would be preset, often timed with an actor's change of costume or a special effects sequence. Doctor Who would record on a Friday night, with around three and a half to four hours being allocated to get one 25-minute episode in the can, following four days' worth of rehearsal. By the late 1960s, though, TV had moved on. It was competing with film, and as such, budgets had gotten larger and more ambitious TV dramas started to take to the air. None were more ambitious, or healthier of budget, than the film serials created by ITC. ITC ushered in an era of TV, where it started to experiment with the form, creating globe-trotting heroes who engaged in car chases, fisticuffs and visited exotic locales none of which could be undertaken following the old way of filming. By 1966, ITC had a number of serials that fitted this example. The Saint, The Baron, Jerry Anderson's Super Marionation Shows, and Danger Man, moderately budgeted, filmic-looking serials with more to keep the viewer visually engaged than a two-shot of the cast engaging in a comfy chat down the pub. These new ways of filming meant, though, that certain creative types wanted to push the boundaries further, deal with more interesting topics, move into surrealism and more sophisticated writing and filming techniques. Such was the case with ITC's highest-paid star, Patrick McGowan, who was tiring of his show, Danger Man. However, McGowan was a draw, and not wanting to lose him, ITC's head honcho, Lord Lou Grade, gave McGowan carte blanche to create whatever new show he wanted, provided Grade could sell it to America. McGowan came up with The Prisoner, and its creation would stretch the boundaries of what TV was thought capable of at that time. It would be challenging, provocative, stimulating, and, more importantly, filmic. The Prisoner was a show that needed to be watched, not just listened to. It would take its ideas from avant-garde cinema rather than the popular blockbusters of the day, and would focus on McGowan's pet themes of individuality in a world increasingly becoming mechanised, and the rights of the individual in a world where people with differences were shunned and ostracised. It would be a deconstruction of everything McGowan had just spent five years working on, the spy drama. It would also experiment with the form, telling stories with no easy answers, stories that required the viewer to pay attention and formulate their own opinions on what had just happened, and, in one memorable case, a story with no dialogue at all for over half of its runtime. An episode entitled Many Happy Returns. A script with barely any dialogue was pretty revolutionary for the day. 
The granddaddy of the genre, The Twilight Zone, got there first with a 1961 segment entitled The Invaders. And nowadays, TV fans, particularly genre TV fans, can reel off any number of telly episodes with minimal dialogue. Buffy had Hush, Space Above and Beyond had Who Monitors the Birds, and more recently, Samurai Jack and Bojack Horseman have done dialogue-less episodes. I presume there are shows more recently that have done dialogue-less episodes that don't have the words Jack in the title. But for The Prisoner to do a regular episode that required the viewer to pay rapt attention to the narrative without the crutch of characters expositing at them after every commercial break was, at the time, novel. The Prisoner was already accustomed to not spoon-feeding its audience, and this was just one more way for McGowan to tantalise and tease his viewer. The passage of time was a crucial element of this story. Most TV shows don't require us to ask questions such as, well, how long did it take him to get there? Characters open a door in one location and, as if by magic, appear in the other. We never see Batman caught in a traffic jam or Jack Bauer bemoaning the LA transport system. Here, the show is seen to take place over 27 days. Or is it? It's the prisoner, after all. Can we really trust our own eyes? The show is also placed in a specific time and place. The prisoner arrives back in London on Saturday, the 18th of March, 1967. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Many Happy Returns was originally planned to be the final episode of The Prisoner's first block of 13 episodes. This was back when the producers, including McGowan, didn't know quite how long they could feasibly keep the show going, a source of much debate amongst the crew and ITC. The episode was written by Anthony Skeen from an idea suggested by David Tomlin. The director was supposed to be Michael Truman, and he did in fact shoot two days of location footage in the village, actually Port Merion in Wales. However, Truman didn't last. He was feeling ill and, by some accounts, wasn't seeing eye to eye with McGowan. Truman left the production after a couple of days, and McGowan, under his pseudonym Joseph Cerf, took over directorial duties. We open, as normal, with the longest opening title sequence in television history.
In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> Sharp-eyed viewers will have noticed something off straight away. Normally, the opening credits include the new number two, whereas this episode did not. A generic voiceover by actor Robert Ritti was used instead. Hmm. Still, the titles are provocative. Every week we see McGowan, only ever referred to as number six, resign, return to his flat to pack for a holiday, or... Something more sinister, we never know, only to be drugged and kidnapped and placed in the village. Every week we ponder the lines. Why are they so set on knowing why he resigned? He's actually told them in one show it was for peace of mind. A decent, if not detailed, explanation. Why do any of us leave jobs? We're bored. We've had enough. We want to do more with our lives. Few of us work in businesses where we can be considered a security risk, though, and that's probably an important element. At what point does somebody who works for the Secret Service know too much? The final mocking laugh as Six proclaims he's a free man. The prisoner asked what is freedom a lot. The retirees are free in the village free to do as they please, but they can't leave and are under constant surveillance. What is freedom? The show asked regularly. We're monitored, indexed, filed and numbered from birth to death. That's not freedom for number six. The line, what do you want? And its answer, information. We give our information away daily, for free, to social media, to phone companies, to eBay. If Six's battle was to keep himself to himself, I'd argue it's a battle that 21st century humans have lost. We feel we have a right to know everything, but normally nothing of consequence. We're fascinated with Ephemera, Kanye West and his marriage, for example, whilst our elected puppets are up to shady stuff that we don't care about or ever hold them accountable for. In the village, who is watching The Watchers? Six feels that that's his rule. He plans to leave, return, blow the village off the map. But who is he really at war with? When he asks, who is number one? And the retort is, you are number six. Never has a comma been more important. Is he, and by extension us, at war with ourselves? With our own peace of mind, with our own conscience? Six's life could be easy, comfortable, pleasant even. If he conforms, don't we all conform, eventually? And these are just the opening titles. Six wakes up to a village with no running water, which means he can't do his teeth, which is always a bit gross. He steps outside. The village is empty. The phones aren't working. It looks like it was abandoned overnight. Watching the location footage of the village now, having been to its filming location in Port Merion in Wales many times, 
is fascinating. Port Merion isn't that big. You can walk around it in a day. And seeing it empty and how little it's changed is wonderful. Like that dragonfly trapped in amber in Jurassic Park, Port Merion obeys its own rules. Time? What is time to something truly timeless? It also allows one to see how TV and film production cheats with innovative camera angles and positions. It's one of the best episodes in the run for actually getting to see Port Merion as it was, and in many ways, still is. Six breaks into the office of number two, and it too is empty. He spies his chance. Taking a mini moak, he legs it, driving out of the village, hopefully forever. Sadly, he's thwarted. The village is surrounded by mountains too large to pass. The editing here is tight, the filming shaky. Six is off guard, so we, the viewer, are kept off guard. There were more shots of Six wandering the village, but these were wisely cut for time. We get the point. No need to belabour. Six returns to the village. We've seen in prior episodes that Six is a real handyman, capable of woodworking with the best of them. Using the facilities, he constructs a raft, stockpiles it with food and water, and then takes pictures of the village with a portable camera. He places the camera in a waterproof plastic bag, puts it in his pocket, and sets sail. The filmic quality of the show I mentioned earlier is on full display here. The location footage in Wales, plus further afield, plays greatly into the exotic look of the show. Six driving the moke out of the village was filmed at MGM, as were many of the scenes of him constructing the raft. Shots of the mountains were library footage and scenes of Six on the raft were filmed on the Irish Sea. The raft, incidentally, was attached to a boat for the crew to film, but a fire broke out on the raft and had to be cut loose. It was never found. Yet another mystery inspired by the prisoner. Six is also, as he has been shown throughout the run of the series, to be adept and intelligent. Remember when our TV heroes were smart? Six's activities on the raft are a demonstration of such. He uses a jar, water, a needle and a small piece of wood to fashion a compass. Keeps tracks of tides, directions of wind, logs how many days he's been at sea and even constructs a sail. Eventually though even the hardiest of us needs sleep and exhaustion catches up with him. However, has Six struck it lucky? He encounters no bad weather and he's even found by passing sailors. He's then chucked into the sea. Bastards. Somebody on the prisoner production crew has a very low opinion of people. Ever resourceful, Six manages to latch onto the trailing ropes of the boat and pulls himself aboard. Snooping around the boat, he finds that it's operated by gunrunners and makes his way to the galley. He then starts frying up some cooking oil so as to make a fire. He uses tea cloths to make the fire into smoke, filling the small boat, and with the gunrunners caught off guard by the potential hazard, Six manages to overpower both men, tying them up and taking control. Personally, I'd have chucked both of them overboard, but, you know, I'm not the hero of a television show. It's a testament, though, to the hero of this television show, Patrick McGowan's star power, that he's carrying this show so effortlessly. For 15 minutes, he's the only person on screen. The editing is tight, and the music likewise engages the viewer, despite all being tracked from other episodes, most of the budget presumably going on the location footage. 
The action, when it comes, is frenetic and not overtly glossy or stupid as TV fights can be. Six should have listened to me, because the men, Germans by the sound of it, get loose and Six's fight with them in the cabin is as claustrophobic and brutal as 007's fight with Red Grant in From Russia With Love. Fortunately, Six spots a lighthouse, and he leaps overboard rather than be overpowered. A strong swimmer, Six manages to reach the shore. More impressive location filming here. Six arrives on the shore of Beachy Head and walks up past the beautiful chalk headland near Eastbourne in East Sussex. The lighthouse, by the way, is still there and has been in operation since 1902. Struggling up the rocks, Six finally encounters a man walking his dog and 23 minutes into the episode, the first lines of dialogue are spoken. Where is this? The man doesn't answer him. Just indicates for Six to follow. McGowan is every inch the movie star. His commanding presence is palpable and he cuts an impressive figure silhouetted against the blue sky, backlit to show only his outline. Dishevelled, unkempt and tired he may be, but he's never broken. Six does follow to a Romany camp, actually filmed around Folkestone in Kent. None of the campers speak English, but they welcome Six with a warm broth and give him directions to the road. At the road, he sees a British bobby, but his paranoia is so intense that he avoids them, instead leaping into the back of a lorry, momentarily paused due to a slight traffic jam. Six ends up in London Marble Arch, to be precise, and he returns home to the same location as that scene in the opening credits. It's been another six minutes of screen time, almost 30 minutes total, before we finally hear some more dialogue. That's two-thirds of the episode carried solely by McGowan. Six isn't impressed to find that his house and car are now owned by a woman, guest star Georgina Cookson as Mrs Butterworth. Six's car, a much-admired piece of prisoner memorabilia and a Lotus Super 7 kit car, was written off by its Australian owner in an amateur racing accident in 1969. Butterworth, mentioning that the car tended to overheat in traffic, was an accurate description of a common problem with this model. Six calls himself Peter Smith, not his real name, I'm sure, and after proving his former ownership of the house and car, Six reveals that tomorrow is his birthday. For some reason, Mrs Butterworth doesn't want him to leave, and she allows him to shower and gives him some of her dead husband's clothes. Buying time? For what purpose? When Six does finally leave, she asks him to return, for if he does, she'll bake him a birthday cake. The whole scene is played wonderfully subtextually by the actors. Is Mrs Butterworth all she seems? Is Six overly paranoid? What, if any of this, is real? Has he really, finally, truly escaped? Butterworth allows Six to borrow the car, and through the library footage seen in the opening titles, he returns to the office we saw him resign from, complete with producer George Markstein still behind the desk. It's a nice touch that Mr Butterworth's clothes are a little bit too big for McGowan. Six tries to convince his superiors of his story. Anyone at home? Pretty a spot. Mixture of architectures, Italianate. It's difficult, certainly has a Mediterranean flavour. What do you think, Thor? I think I wouldn't mind a fortnight's leave there. Isn't for life, eh? Far cry from Sing Sing. I'm sorry to interrupt an afternoon's golf, Colonel, but this is not a joking matter. 
My dear fellow, you really mustn't blame Thorpe. After all, you yourself on occasion could be a little skeptical. That's why you were such a good man. Why we were so sorry to lose you. The evidence is there. A set of photographs from ground level of a holiday resort. And a schoolboy navigational log on the back of what you call the village newspaper. No, I'm sorry, it's the best I could do in the circumstances. You'd hardly expect the village store to issue sextants, would you? Indeed, indeed. The place was, as you said it was. The tally-ho. A daily issue. Morning or evening? Daily at noon. What are facts behind Town Hall? Town Hall? That's right. Town Council? Correct. Were you a member? I could have been. It's democratically elected once a year. Democratically? That's what they claim. And they're all numbers. No names. No names at all. Just numbers. I see. Numbers in a village that is a complete unit of our own society. A place to put people who can't be left around. People who know too much or too little. A place with many means of breaking a man. Intriguing. They have their own cinema, their own newspaper, their own television station, a credit card system, and if you're a good boy and cop up the secrets, you are gracefully retired into the old people's home. This is a great scene. As usual, the prisoner portrays the powers that be as cowardly and inflexible. They may even know all of this already, Six doesn't know. They have no interest in the truth, only the maintenance of the status quo. Nobody in charge really wants change. They have too much of a vested interest in the way things are. Six knows too much, he can't be trusted. Even if he is loyal, other powers would do anything to know what he knows. Civil servants in the world of the prisoner are slimy toadies whose only interest is in protecting themselves. However, it does look like Six is making headway. The Air Force start to believe him, and from the data he plotted, they managed to work out his maximum potential travel and direction. The Air Force colonel still calls him number six, to which he reacts badly, but he doesn't tell them his real name. Although, presumably, thinking about it, they already know it. A clue, perhaps, though, to the intent of this episode. Again, we're left to ponder the question, is this it? Is the prisoner finally a free man? Is the location of the village accurate, off the coast of Morocco, southwest of Portugal and Spain? Only one way to find out. Six suits up, and with an Air Force pilot, he jets back to find the village. He's ejected out of the plane with a crafty, be seeing you, from the pilot. Be seeing you, being the benign but sinister phrase used by the village inhabitants to say goodbye. Of course they'll be seeing you. You can't leave. The ruse is complete. Six lands back in a busy and bustling village. Mrs. Butterworth is the new number two. That's why she was missing from the opening credits. The producers didn't want to spoil the surprise. For Six's birthday, she gave him what he wanted most of all. To escape. She presents him with the birthday cake she promised him when he returned. I covered The Prisoner a long time ago, but focused more on the episodes McGowan considered essential. There's ten other episodes of The Prisoner. None of them are bad. All of them are worth your time. 
McGowan and ITC were smarter than J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot. Unlike Lost, the makers of The Prisoner knew enough to know the series couldn't go on forever. The sting in this tale is that we want Six to escape. We want his rugged individuality and dogged stubbornness to win. Whilst also acknowledging that rarely do we win in the game of life. Many Happy Returns isn't as provocative as other episodes, like Free For All, or as challenging as Checkmate, but it's arguably as good as both of them, in its own way. It still champions the rights of the one man to be a pain in the ass of the people in charge. It shows that we are but toys to those same people, annoyances, our questions getting in the way of their ordered lives. One could ask how the village was evacuated so thoroughly in one night, and where all those people went. One could ask why, when they had six out of the village, and with his guard down, the powers that be didn't simply ask questions of him. But perhaps that would have tipped their hand. The power of the prisoner, though, lies in other things. In many ways, this shows six that even if he does escape, what then? He has no idea who was in on this. Mrs Butterworth, obviously, but absolutely anyone else could have been in on it. From Thorpe, who we met in the office, the colonel of the RAF, to the gunrunners. The pilot clearly was in on it, given his proclamation, be seeing you, and the fact that the same man was also the milkman seen outside of Six's house earlier in the episode. This only increases our paranoia, because all of it, or none of it, could have been planned. Six simply doesn't know. It's just another subtle way of breaking him. Why not just give in, the episode is asking. You can't win. You can't get away. Capitulate. Make life easy on yourself. A familiar refrain. It's interesting to note that the women number twos, as here and in the episode Dance of the Dead, tried to break six in more subtle ways than the male number twos. Intentional? It's the prisoner. Who can say? The Prisoner is an excellent show, very much of its time, but also timeless. Like Port Marion, one might say. No mooted remake would ever work, as McGowan was the heart and soul of the production. Only the audio dramas from Big Finish come even close to capturing the feel of the show. A show that resonates. Today, more than ever.
more powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Richard Richard Pryor? Pryor? Yes, it's Superman 3 Movie Minute. On Superman 3 Movie Minute, we'll be examining Richard Lester's 1983 film, Five Minutes at a Time. This time around, we don't just have Superman. We have evil Superman, Lana Lang, a scary robot lady, and yes, Richard Pryor. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, we're back. Let's check on the email section, should we? Before we dive into the email bag, sack virtual whatever you want to call it we need to put out a little bit of errata last time i mentioned that bruce banner was studying brazilian which is apparently a wax (laughs) let's not go there or maybe do go there i don't know in fact i was informed on twitter that he was actually studying portuguese because that was a social media note I made a note of it and did not note who it was who mentioned it, for which many apologies. But thank you for pointing that out. Secondly, though, and perhaps more egregious, Alan W. Wright pointed out, I said that that was the best set-bound superhero fight since Superman 2 when I was talking about the Incredible Hulk. Well, it turns out that that wasn't a set. It was actually a real-life street in Ontario. Don't. Well, you know, it just goes to show, doesn't it? You can't tell anymore what is a set and what is real. We cannot trust our own eyes. The prisoner was right all along. All right, so let's have a look at the email. C.C. Franklin, otherwise known as Christopher Franklin, emailed in with Michelini and McFarlane. Hello, Andy. Catching up on podcasts after the holidays, and I saw I missed part one of your Michelini McFarlane coverage, but luckily you put out part two to remind me it had slipped through my earbuds cracks. Don't know if we want to go into your earbuds cracks. Probably better than another crack, one would imagine. Like you, at this time, I had wandered off the Spidey reservation quite a bit. I picked up a few books here and there during the year prior to Amazing Spider-Man 300. But the hobgoblin business that, no, no, we mean it, the red and blue is gone. Seriously, honestly, we mean it. And the general grittiness of the Spidey books had me looking elsewhere. And then I saw issue 300. I'm always a sucker for anniversary issues, and the sequel to the Symbiote Saga pulled me right in. Plus, I loved Todd McFarlane's art. I will admit I don't care for it much now, just like I don't care much for the hair metal I listened to around the same time in middle and high school. But I do admire the energy and change and touch of Ditko quirkiness he brought to the books to this day. I can look at them objectively and say it was what the book needed, even though my adult eyes find it kind of grotesque in a lot of ways. I could definitely appreciate all the MJ cheesecake back then, though. Old stuffiness aside, I have a huge soft spot for these books, and I'm glad to hear you cover them. I've also been enjoying rewatching Book Rogers on MeTV, especially these season one episodes like the War Witch Saga you just covered. I'm really surprised how oversexed this show was. How did Princess Adala even make it onto network TV back then? Book is actually the stereotype of what many people think Captain Kirk was on the original series, cut away to boot-zipping aside. But either way, the show is just a lot of fun, as was your coverage. More, please. I hope you and the family are doing well in these crazy, crazy times. Take care, Chris. Well, you're getting more of both, young Christopher. There is more McFarlane, Michelini coming along next time where I'll be carrying on where I left off. And you just heard more, albeit about the prisoner rather than Book Rogers. But I'm not averse to covering some more book. 
I may even do a second series one, but I haven't watched a lot of them since um, since they originally heard. I don't think I watched all of them then because it was such a disappointment that the show had gone so far off the reservation. Dave McElvany has emailed it in. Palace of Glittering Delights, Book Rogers, Flight of the War Witch. Greetings, Andrew. Greetings, Dave. I enjoyed this episode for truly silly reasons. I've loved Book Rogers, the character, since I was a youngster, after I got a book of collected Book Rogers newspaper strips from 1929 and 1930 for my birthday. Those strips were pure pulp and tons of fun. Later, I discovered the movie serial from 1939 starring Buster Crab, which was also cheesy, pulpy goodness. When the TV series appeared, I was excited to watch it, but as you noted, it didn't really lean into the science fiction aspects of Buck Rogers, and Buck himself quickly became boring. This led to an odd personal connection for me. I was, at the time the show heard, a high school mathematics teacher, and one of my students took to calling me Buck because she said I reminded her of Buck Rogers. I quickly came to realise that as a math teacher, whose one-liners were also eye-rollingly lame, I might well be considered boring, and this was probably the reason behind my earning of that sobriquet. Despite that, I still enjoy Buck Rogers and have fond memories of the show, and I enjoyed your coverage of Flight of the War Witch. Thank you. Live long and prosper, Dave McAlvany. Well, you are very welcome. I prefer to think, Dave, that she re- you reminded her of Gil Gerard. Not so much, but Rogers. That's that's a much more flattering way of looking at it. Yeah, it's it really strikes me as very weird that an awful lot of the TV heroes of that time, when we go back and actually watch them as adults, they were quite dull. They didn't really have a lot of personality. Steve Austin doesn't have a lot of personality. But Rogers doesn't have a lot of personality. Logan's run and shows of that ilk. The lead characters are rather bland mannequins. It always took, I think, either an actor of a certain calibre to rise above the material and give the character some flaws and quirks. I would say, you know, James Garner did that with Rockford. Uh, Tom Selleck did that with Magnum. Dirk Benedict did it to a, to a great extent with Starbuck. Starbuck could have been just a boring cliche and, and Benedict managed to bring it some charm. It was only really, I think, in the 80s and certainly into the 90s that they started to, to lean into American TV writers to lean into, you know, sometimes you can give your characters some flaws. Fox Mulder had quite a lot of flaws and he was a more interesting character because of it. And I think that's something that a lot of the the 60s and 70s shows nowadays, that's why there's not a lot of repeat value. I don't think it's because the lead characters are often the most boring characters in it. As Chris just alluded to in his email, the best episodes of Buck Rogers in the first season are the ones where Princess Adala comes back. And not just because Pamela Hensley was a sex pot, because she clearly was, but because she's just having so much fun as the conflicted princess. She's got a character, though. She's got a character that she can play with. It's a princess who has been risen in a certain way to believe that she'll be following in her father's footsteps, but she's she kind of fights it. She's not really that interested in it, and Book shows her another way. And yeah, she's also shown an incredible rarity at that time to be a woman who likes sex. You know, leave the woman alone. Let her do what she enjoys doing. And that's why those episodes were always better, I think, because Hensley just comes along, knows what she's doing, owns the screen, owns those costumes, and just chews up all of the campy goodness around her and spits it out with relish. And it's like, there's the pilot's good because she's in it, Flight of the War, which is good because not only does it have Hensley, but also Julie Newmar, 
But Ardala Returns and um, the other one, Escape from Wedded Bliss, are probably the best episodes of the show, simply because Ardala has a, a, a prominent role. It's probably why the second season didn't work. There wasn't enough Princess Ardala, and by not enough Princess Ardala, I mean there was none. Okay, let's call it a day there. Thank you for emailing in Dave and Chris. Always very much appreciated. Half an hour is a good length for Palace episodes, I think, because it's just me waffling. And you don't really want too much of that, I don't think. You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you are of a notion. Please do. Uh, you know where I am. Drive me on Twitter, Facebook, etc, etc, etc. Again, touch me if you wish. It is all going to be fine. It's all going to be great. The cure's coming. It's, it's tantalizingly close. We hope. And I'll see you all next time when I return to McCallini and McFarlane's Amazing Spider-Man. Take care, and I'll see you all real soon. Goodbye.